1995, the subject of gay rights had been put to Maine voters nine times. Beginning in 1977, when Representative Larry Connolly proposed the state's first gay rights bill, the issue had returned every few years in various forms. Several times, human rights ordinances were passed in Maine's largest cities, only to be challenged by public referendum. The wording of these ballot measures was deliberately confusing, and gay rights advocates had learned that in order to deliver messaging that clarified whether this question required a yes or a no vote, they needed to raise 10 times the amount as their opponents. In April 1993, both the state, House, and Senate had passed a progressive human rights bill, which was promptly vetoed by Republican Governor Jock McKernan. Later that year, the Coalition to End Special Rights in Lewiston successfully campaigned to repeal that town's anti-discrimination statute. Nationally, this was a time when the civil rights of the LGBTQ community were under attack. The Defense of Marriage Act was working its way through Congress, eventually passing by a veto-proof majority and landing on President Clinton's desk, where it was signed into law. The conservative focus on the family organization was lending its vocal support to anti-gay legislation across the country. In Maine, a local group called Concerned Maine Families collected enough signatures to put a referendum on the November 1995 ballot. This measure would restrict protected classes to those that were already listed in state law. The referendum never once mentioned the group it was designed to oppress. As the New York Times put it, the only statewide civil rights referendum this year that affects homosexuals may be most striking for what it does not mention, homosexuality. A broad coalition formed to defeat this referendum. They called themselves Maine Won't Discriminate, and their members included activists and attorneys, as well as the Maine Council of Churches, the Maine State Chamber of Commerce, and the Maine Education Association. Their fundraising efforts were diverse and creative and included t-shirts, bumper stickers, barn dances, and performances. All were designed to build community. And so, Maine Won't Discriminate made a cookbook. Welcome to Cooking as Community, the Community Cookbook Podcast. I'm Margaret Hathaway, food writer, goat farmer, and mom of three. I'm Don Lindgren, antiquarian bookseller and food historian. And I'm Carl Schatz, photographer, goat farmer, and journalist. Community cookbooks open a fascinating window on 150 years of American food, culture, and home life. And so we started this podcast to share our love for them and for the communities that put them together. On today's podcast, we're talking about Out in the Kitchen, a cookbook for those with non-discriminating taste, compiled in 1995 by Maine Won't Discriminate, a political coalition based in Portland, Maine. The cookbook was raising money to fight an anti-gay rights referendum that was on the ballot in Maine in the mid-1990s. We'll talk with Susan Sanders and Nancy Wanderer, who are part of the Maine Won't Discriminate campaign, and have eight recipes in the cookbook. And for our cooking segment, we made Nancy and Susan's recipe for Spanakopita. Yes, you heard me correctly, Spanakopita. Stay tuned. We're recording this episode during Pride Month, and we want to honor all of our LGBTQ family and friends. In a relatively progressive state like Maine, it's easy to forget how serious the repercussions of coming out can be in both personal and professional relationships. 
This cookbook really brought home to us how long and hard the fight has been, how easy it is to take certain rights for granted, and how important it is to be a vocal ally. We are in awe of the tenacity of activists in the LGBTQ community as they continue to fight for equal rights and protections. Gay rights are human rights, and before we talk about this book, we want to acknowledge the fearless people who continue to fight for equity and equality for all communities. Happy Pride Month. Don, do you want to describe the Out in the Kitchen book? It's kind of your classic late American community cookbook with a plastic comb binding. It's a black comb binding with no text written on it. And it's got these sort of electric green covers printed in black. And the title, Out in the Kitchen, is on the cover along with an image of the front of a refrigerator, which is kind of neat because it it reminds us that the front of the refrigerator is where you kept all the info. And you still might keep all the info about your schedule and stuff to do and a drawing by your child if they didn't make refrigerators out of aluminum and magnets no longer (laughs) worked on them. I really wish they still did. One thing I uh, like about this cover is it has a bunch of post-it notes or, or magnets that promote the cause of the book, but there are also a couple of notes on it that are almost like inside jokes that if you didn't know, like if we hadn't talked to people who were involved in the campaign, and back then, you know, maybe a lot of people knew what some of these things meant. And there is a little post-it that says, call Pat. And we learned in our conversation with Susan and Nancy who Pat is and why that post-it is there. Pat Peard was one of the organizers. Yeah, Pat Peard was the chairwoman of the Maine Won't Discriminate campaign. Right. So there's some little like hidden things on the cover, which I which I enjoyed learning about. Yeah. And in the interior, it's, a, it's an interesting book because unlike a lot of the books we've looked at so far... There's a lot of texts beyond just what is the collection of recipes. You know, some community cookbooks start and they don't even have a title page. They, they just start right in with recipes on page one. But this one has statements and images from the Maine Won't Discriminate organization explaining the purpose of the book. There's a page that has a, it's called a brief history of gay rights legislation in Maine, which outlines gay rights legislation starting in 1977 or attempts to make it right through, through the 95, the year of publication of this book. And uh, just a reminder to everyone that we have pictures of the inside pages of the book. So if you want to see the brief history of gay rights legislation in Maine or the description of Maine Won't Discriminate, there are pictures of that on our Instagram feed, which is at Community Cookbook Podcast, and on Facebook also at Community Cookbook Podcast. Don, please continue. So there's that sort of information that's extra that's included. And then there's also some other information. And that's information that's included by the printers of the book with the permission or at the request, of course, of the people who published it, the Maine Won't Discriminate. Which brings us to the one of the, the more interesting things about this book is it ends up being sort of a compilation that's produced locally, but it has elements that were made by the company that did the printing, which was not local at all. When we look at these books, the earliest ones we've looked at, and going right up through, say, the 1930s, it's really easy in almost every case to talk about how truly local the book is. And there's something that happens starting around 1900 and continuing through the 30s and 40s, which is that the local printers and binders who produced the earlier books started disappearing. But another group was offered the opportunity to work with a big 
sort of specialty printer, which was a whole new thing that developed mostly in the Midwest. And these were publishers that specialized just in making community cookbooks as fundraising efforts for people. This book in 1995 is really about 50 years into that history of these specialist printers producing these types of books at the request of a local community. So we've been talking about how these books have been influenced by these changes that were they were partially technological in printing, they were partially economic as printers and binders might have to get bigger and then become very consolidated to these extremely specialist companies. And those were all things that were influencing the creation of these cookbooks. But there's another thing that Out in the Kitchen demonstrates really well, and that's that there's another category of things that's changing here, and that is the type of community organization and the type mm. of charitable yes. purpose. Yeah. And those things change over time as there are new needs that no one would have imagined 100 years earlier. So in, right. you know, in 1995, the idea of supporting specific legislation, that had happened before. There were cookbooks that supported uh, women's suffrage. There were cookbooks that supported mm -hmm. other political movements at various points. But you know, by 1995, people were starting to think, how can we raise funds for this particular legislative issue or fighting this particular legislative issue? And so the community cookbook gets applied to that. So it's a different kind of community group and it's a different kind of charitable purpose. And this is just a great example of how those things evolve with the community cookbook. Yeah, I think, you know, when I look at this cookbook, it's exactly what I think of, of as a community cookbook, the, the spiral bound, the, the cover. But the cause itself is much more progressive than I sort of think of as being one of the hallmarks of a community cookbook. And I, I don't know why those things don't seem to line up in my head, but I think it's wonderful. I think it's really exciting that that the Out in the Kitchen book exists. It's still a community cookbook doing its job of helping to raise money and support these these community groups, but it's got a whole new purpose now. And, and this is just one example. Well, and we're seeing community now being defined by either a church organization or a social organization or a band organization, you know, and also communities being defined by people with a shared political, social, cultural belief. It's much more, in some ways, philosophical. You know, it's a different type of community. That's right. And the sort of changing social ideas is is something that can be charted through the history of community cookbooks. If you look at enough of them, you can see when community cookbooks become employed to support an idea like suffrage. When do they become employed to support legal representation in prisons? Um, that's something you start to see in the 1950s. There, there are books that are put out by different groups that are working with prisoners in New York State, in California. And in most cases, the funds being raised are there in order to help with legal appeals, other types of legal assistance within the prisons. There are also organizations that sprung up and then produced books in order to fund AIDS research and HIV research. There's a different cause at a different moment in history. So, you know, there's, there's this never-ending march of new issues, new needs in the community, and the community cookbook remains today an effective way to raise funds. And so as those 
as the groups change, as the needs change, as the charitable purposes change, the cookbook stays very much the same. One thing that I think is really wonderful about Out in the Kitchen is that the recipes are attributed and the idea of affiliating with this community and being an ally to the community that's reaching out for, for gay rights, that everyone has signed on to that and is being very public in their support. And I I think in some ways for that time, for the mid-90s, that's a little bit surprising and it's also really heartening. It feels like that community made people feel safe to sign on to that and to say that they're an ally. I think to put your name on this book is a really brave thing. And I think it's wonderful that, that I don't, I don't recall seeing any anonymous recipes contributed to this. It's like signing a petition, right? Everyone's putting their name down in this book and saying, I support this cause. On the record. On the record. Right. And I think, you know, and we don't know who's gay or straight, who's giving these recipes. And so it's just a way to say, we support this. If we went back and we looked at the early suffrage community cookbooks, which were produced in the 1880s and 90s in, in, in America, they had a secondary purpose beyond raising the funds, and, or I guess it's a third purpose, beyond raising funds and, and supplying good recipes. And the purpose was to show that the people in the suffrage movement were normal. That they, that especially the women, that the that the women mm-hmm. were not radicals who were leaving their families and not interested in the important aspects of homemaking, and mm-hmm. that was one of the charges leveled against suffragettes. Yeah, I think the the parallels between the suffrage movement and the movement for civil rights for LGBTQ community that that's that's a really good parallel. I think in both cases, people were othered for no reason other than their demand for equal rights, you know? You know, I just found an anonymous, anonymously signed recipe. Oh, no! There, yeah, on, on page 100, thick hot chocolate sauce is signed by an anonymous educator and chocolate lover. They're explicitly saying anonymous. They're not, they're not just leaving the name off. But. Yeah. Well, you know, that's that's really interesting. You know, one of the things that Nancy and Susan talked about, because, well, they were both in education at, at different points, and they talked about, you know, this was a time when educators could lose their jobs if they came out as gay or lesbian. Right. And so it's very possible that that's someone who was afraid that if their name was associated with this cookbook, that, that they could lose their job. Well, I think this is a great time to hear from our, our guests this week who were personally involved in the Maine Won't Discriminate Coalition and campaign and contributed to this cookbook. We'll be right back. Susan Sanders and Nancy Wanderer have been together for 35 years. When they met in 1986, coming out as gay or lesbian came with great risks. Despite the dangers, they were active lobbying for LGBTQ equal protection rights in Maine and were part of the Maine Won't Discriminate campaign. They contributed eight recipes to the Out in the Kitchen cookbook. Susan retired in 2011 from her position as Director of Guidance at Wiscasset High School. Nancy, an attorney and law professor, retired in 2014. After decades of fighting for equal rights, they were able to marry legally in Massachusetts in 2010. Susan and Nancy, welcome to Cooking as Community, and uh, happy Pride Month. Thank Thank you. you. It's always a good month. 
So why don't we start by just having you tell us a little bit about yourselves and how you first got involved with either the Maine Won't Discriminate campaign itself or just in general LGBTQ rights in Maine? Well, I guess it was a sort of organic process. I mean, we both came out to ourselves in the context of meeting each other. So it's not like we had been involved for years and years. Although I had done quite a bit of work with gay and lesbian students at Colby when I was assistant director or associate director of career counseling there. So I had a, you know, a, a grounding in what it was all about, but not, not for myself personally. And I think what happened after we got together was that we didn't realize there was a fight on for actual legal rights in Maine for LGBTQ. We didn't even know about Q or T then, <laughs> but we knew that we needed community. And so it started for us with some potlucks with a few people that we knew. And of course, both of us were very closeted in the rest of our lives. Mm. So if we ever, ever see someone that we actually knew from some other context, like I was in law school and I mm -hmm. saw another law student there. And I mean, we were hiding behind posts and, you know, it was very, very nerve wracking, but we needed the community. So we were going to these potlucks and various things. And then the two of us went on a bike trip with a women's bike group from Kenny Bunkport. And at the time we thought we were the only two lesbians. It turned out there was another one who wasn't <laughs> telling. We felt kind of uncomfortable being among all these women and not being able to be ourselves and mm. be out. But we learned a lot about how to run a bike trip. <laughs> so after we'd done that two or maybe three years, we decided to have our own group. And we counted up how many people from our bike group were in that cookbook. And there were 13. Wow. Um, yeah. So we started the Amelia Wheelhart Feminist Biking Club. <laughs> and we, we organized, the two of us, three-day tours. And it was really a lesbian biking club. That was yeah. the thing. It wasn't just feminist. We wanted to be among other people that were comfortable being out. And we had a wonderful, wonderful group. And that was the beginning, I guess, of several groups that became community for us. And as you can see, if there were 13 Amelia Wheelharts who contributed to this cookbook, it was a group that was willing to, you know, to go get out there and campaign. Yeah. We were also singing in Women in Harmony, which was a mostly lesbian chorus in Portland, and that we counted up eight people from that group that uh -huh. were in the group. And then we had other people a bit here and there. But it was so important to us to have community. So we just created our own. And it turns yeah. out that community translated right into Maine Won't Discriminate. Yeah. And the cook. Right. Wow, that's that's great. In an email to me, you mentioned that the sort of environment in Maine in the 80s, it was dangerous to come out as gay mm -hmm. or lesbian. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what were some of the risks? Well, before I ever met Nancy, I was getting divorced and I did not identify as a lesbian, but my former husband thought that was an issue. And I thought I was going to lose custody of my kids. Wow. And my, I had a very good lawyer who just cut off mediation and said, we're not going any further. And we worked it out so that we shared custody. But so custody was a real issue. And we know people who did lose custody of their kids. And the other thing is that we were both in education at the time. I was at um, an elementary school. I mean, either of us could have lost our job. Any gay or lesbian person had no protection with their wow. jobs. Later in the Maine Won't Discriminate campaign, I was at Lewiston High School and Lewiston was 
just a horrible place to be as far as gay rights was concerned. I had the organizer of the anti-Maine Won't Discriminate. His kids were on my caseload at school, and it was very nerve-wracking every time he came into my office. Really? For any, yeah. did, he, did he know that you were involved in the campaign? I don't think so. But it was just, it was in, just internally you, you felt. You know, right, and you know. I had never come into contact with him in that context, but he could have found out some way. I mean, because... Tell about the meeting that we went to, the public meeting. Yeah, there was a public meeting. And I think that the town council had voted to have protections in place for LGBTQ people, and it was being overturned. And so Nancy and I both went to a public meeting, but I had decided that even though it felt dangerous to me that I was going to speak at the meeting. And I had my remarks prepared, and there were so many people speaking that I they never got to me. Well, plus it felt really dangerous. Yeah, I, it I was a hostile environment there. Yeah, I can't yeah. remember why it felt so dangerous at that meeting, but I think for the kinds of things people were saying and the tone of their voices and everything, yeah. it seemed like there could be physical danger. Wow that meeting. I, yeah. I, I mean, I think we agreed that Susan shouldn't speak because it was just too dangerous. Yeah, wow. And we were not out in our lives. I mean, it was kind of an odd thing. We were always showing up together. And yeah. after a while, people just accepted, oh, if Susan's coming to the lunch for the teachers. Nancy's coming too. But nobody said, oh, that's because they're a couple. Right. Or maybe they said it to each other, but they, we didn't yeah. say it to each other. We, were, we really were, were so, so scared to come out. Wow. And I was in law school at the time, and I didn't know what the environment was going to be like as I was trying to find my first job in in the law community right. and in fact when i did end up at pierce atwood which is you know the big corporate firm there was another guy there that i i thought was gay and we ended up together in the library at one point and having a kind of a confidential conversation at which time i decided i was going to come out to him mm -hmm. even though i didn't come out to anybody else and and i had great angst over whether I should invite Susan to any of the gatherings, you know, the law firm gatherings, which I in the end didn't. Right. But I came out to this guy and I fully expected him to reciprocate. Hmm. And he said, oh, no, everyone thinks I'm gay, but I'm not. And then a few years later, after we had both left that law firm, he was, of course, with a partner and he wanted to know if we should go together to Washington when the quilt display yeah. was there. And he totally was gay. Yeah. But even in that context, with me coming out to him, it was too dangerous for him. Wow. Would you would you be willing to share a little bit with us about when when you did come out publicly and what that was like and, and how you did that? <laughs> well, it was a very public coming out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you haven't told a single soul except for, you know, like one or two friends and your family. And suddenly you find out that Frontline is looking to make a program about your Wellesley class because Hillary Clinton was your classmate. And they're asking people, oh, who should you talk to? Who should you talk to? And I had been president of my class and I knew they'd get to me eventually because I was, you know, Wendy Wellesley at Wellesley and very all-American and very, very, appearing very straight. Yeah. And I thought, they're going to come and want to talk to me. So I was in a mess with my mother about all this, but I, th I thought I better ask her first if I should talk to them. I thought she'd say, no, don't be ridiculous. Don't be yeah. ridiculous. And for some odd reason, she said, sure, go ahead. I don't think she really thought it through. So once she said that, I thought, okay, I can't have a film about my class without being in it. So I said, yes. And they came back and they interviewed us. And, and it turned out that our whole story and my mother's who ended up in the show too, 
was about this problem of coming out. I had been in a 20 year marriage. I was, you know, 39 years old. My mother was very upset with me. And, and so we came out in the Frontline program, which appeared on, it came through WGBH, but it was on all of the, I mean, it was in my hometown of Pittsburgh. It was wow. my, my relatives in Texas who didn't even know I was divorced. There, I mean, it seemed like everyone in the whole world saw that program because my mother started hearing from her former students that they'd turned on the TV and there was their English teacher. Um, <laughs> so we went from not coming out at all to anybody because we were too scared to just throwing caution to the wind and just what the heck now everybody knows wow and it was a great feeling actually wow. but Go there were also smaller comings out sure coming outs. you know that was mostly nancy coming out i w i appeared very briefly in it yeah. so i had to you know come out to my family who are pretty conservative and didn't take it well. And some of my, my sisters were fine. My brothers weren't very fine. And, and I was in school at the time getting my master's. And I remember inviting one of my friends to lunch that I thought I would be safe to come out to and, and coming out to her. So there were, you know, there was that big public coming out and then there were a mm. lot of smaller comings out, coming sure. out. Yeah. But I have to say that other than my mother and of course, Susan's family, they, I don't know if her mother ever really came around, but but she was okay. Yeah. Um, my mother was the biggest problem, but there wasn't any anything else that actually happened to us that was terrible hmm. after our coming out. The both of the little ones and the big one. Oh, it that's was good. And my Wellesley class was hugely supportive. Yeah. And, and that made it. That was talk about community. That was my most important community, really. Yeah. And. And it was a great relief. They embraced Susan. I think they think she's part of the class now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering what you remember about the origins of this cookbook and putting it together. And if you were involved in, you know, well, we, we should make a cookbook. Whose idea was it? Or do you uh, do you remember any of that? It's well, lost to history. Yeah, this yeah. is kind of funny because I called Pat Peard, who was the leader of the entire political push for, for equal rights, She's in the cookbook. Uh -huh. I would have thought if anybody would have known who did the cookbook or how the cookbook started, she would know. She had no memory at all. That is and so funny. And we also had another friend, Kobe Smith, who's in the cookbook. And she had probably more recipes than anybody else. And she was just like us, like, oh, wait, I forgot all about that cookbook. Oh, yeah, there is. <laughs> She still had the cookbook. Yeah, she still yeah. had the cookbook. Yeah. But when you look through the cookbook, you've probably read through it. There's nothing that tells who organized it. It's, you know, it's kind of like somebody said, submit your recipes. And then there's a there's a cookie cutter place that puts cookbooks together. Right, right. But we do remember the fundraising. And Pat knew that it had to be a part of a fundraising effort because we were, you know, trying to fundraise every which way including um, a good friend of ours had just built a barn and she had a barn dance and hmm. everybody paid something to come to the barn dance. And this cookbook would have been part of that fundraising. But nobody seems to remember who organized it. And I don't, you really can't tell from looking at, and you'd think it was either us or Kobe or someone who had a lot of recipes in there, but it wasn't. Not that I don't think anyway, wow. I remember doing it. Well, I guess it was a real we community did. effort. It, it was. Yeah, very diffuse. Yeah. And I think a lot of the organizing, even though Pat Peard was the central figure, 
it seemed like there were just hundreds of us running around doing whatever needed to be done. And there wasn't a huge hierarchical structure at all. And that's reflected in the cookbook. And so the book and these other fundraisers, they were raising money specifically to support the the campaign, or I guess it, it was really in some ways, it was an anti-campaign because what, what you were trying to do was defeat a proposition, right? It, it wasn't- It which year it was. Some years oh. we voted yes, some years we voted no. Yeah, so it, confusing. It, 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 I mean, if if you went back and you and traced the different things that happened, I mean, it is in the cookbook actually, lists the different things. Right, one bits of, of information that provides some context that's yeah. actually really helpful is it does kind of give you an outline of the timeline of what was happening. Well, and it was part of the confusion for the voters because, you know, every couple of years there'd be another referendum and sometimes it was vote no and sometimes it was vote yes. But in the end, those of us who were involved obviously knew what we were aiming for, but right. to get there, it was very slippery. And very so what was the money being used for exactly? I was trying to think about that. I. I don't publicity. I would say a lot. Yeah, yeah buying buying ad time and yeah. that sort of thing, yeah. Yeah. and bumper stickers, and then there may have been someone who got paid to mm. run. I mean, Pat was not. She was at Bernstein. Sure, she was a lawyer. Uh -huh. She wasn't getting paid by Maine Won't Discriminate, um, but she was the central figure and speaking a lot. But I bet there was somebody that was getting paid a salary to do it. There definitely was for the marriage equality. There was somebody in charge. Right. So. Just whatever it costs to run a campaign. We weren't getting millions of dollars from anybody. We were doing cookbooks and barn dances and <laughs> house parties. House parties, t-shirt right. sales, a lot yeah. of t-shirts. We have many t-shirts from many different campaigns. Well, it worked I, though, right? Maine voted. Yeah, ultimately. No, yeah, ultimately. That's right. You know, sometimes it's just time, right? And at I the guess. time, we couldn't even imagine that there would be marriage, that marriage no. would be legal. We I mean, that even. wasn't even on the table. Right. A lot of people didn't want to go there because they were afraid that, that was going to be a setback. That right. People would be so upset it was a deal breaker that. for some people. Yeah. Who yeah. Were... It turned out it was the opposite. Yeah. People had less trouble with marriage. Odd. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we're glad. we're glad. Yeah, absolutely. So you guys have quite a few recipes in the book. I think I counted eight. Or, yep. Yeah. Eight recipes. So uh, a baked chicken salad, a spanakopita, cashew chicken, crab meat quiche. Chocolate chip oatmeal, chocolate chocolate chip oatmeal, must be cookies. Yeah. cookies, yeah. Yeah, best ever frosted brownies, chocolate zucchini cake, carrot cake. And they're attributed to both of you, but some may be, you know, one person's yeah. recipe. You're like Lennon and McCartney in that way. Like all the, <laughs> all right. the songs are attributed to both of you, no matter who wrote them. So they're well, all it, your it, recipes. It, 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 actually, the first meal that we ever had together other than at the conference where we met. And we call it, it's it's not Spanakopita, like what you'd expect. Yeah. And I don't think it's spelled that way. Oh, we I... call it Spanakopita. Okay. And from the person that I got the recipe from. <laughs> and so as to dif differentiate from the Spanakopita that most people know of, and it's basically a casserole with cottage cheese, cheddar cheese, eggs, and spinach. Uh -huh. It's delicious, absolutely yeah. delicious. It was our first real meal together, and so it's very special to us. We still make all of those things except for the baked chicken salad. We can't even remember ever making the baked chicken salad. <laughs> In fact, the uh, carrot cake I submitted when my son was at, at Williams, mm -hmm. they had a recipe contest, and 
that I feel like that's my very best recipe. The carrot and cake? I, the carrot cake oh. and with cream cheese frosting. And oh. I, I submitted it. And, and they, what the idea was, they were going to, you know, serve it to the students. And if your, if yours was chosen, your student would get, I don't know, a hundred dollars at the snack bar or something. Mm-hmm. And I was so disappointed. I thought they must not have even made it because that is a really good carrot cake. Wow. You know, Margaret's uh, birthday cake is carrot cake. Oh really? Oh. And, so you must have and so I make a carrot every year. I I make carrot a carrot cake for her, and she has a very specific recipe that is her yes. mom's carrot cake recipe that that I have to use. Maybe I'll see if she'll let me switch it up a little bit this year. We'll make, maybe <laughs> well, we'll, we'll make we'll make Nancy wander. If there's any <laughs> if there's any carrot cake that could possibly replace. Uh, well, the, her exactly. regular birthday carrot cake. It, it would be a Nancy Wander carrot cake. I'd love to have her try it for her okay. birthday. And tell her that we've had two weddings, really. We had the one, the legal one in 2010. And then we had our first one in 1990. And it was, you know, just an informal, yeah. it, was, it wasn't legal. And our wedding cake was that carrot cake. And now that marriage is legal in Maine, any thoughts of uh, renewing your vows here in your home state? <laughs> Well, we had said that we'd have a we'd have a wedding every twenty years because we went from nineteen ninety oh, right. yeah. to two thousand ten. So we'll do it again. We'll in do ten it in years, two thousand thirty. Two thousand thirty. All right. Yeah. Well, we'll maybe, maybe maybe we can swing an invite. Oh, I think yes. I I think <laughs> this will be just a for big the affair. carrot cake. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So it sounds like you're still in touch with a lot of the people who also have recipes in in the book that were part of that campaign. Oh, we are. I mean, we counted up how many people in the book we knew, and we knew 34 of the people. And I'd say of the 34, we're in touch with maybe in a pretty good way, half of them. Yeah. Yeah. And some of them quite quite in touch, and they're really good friends. That's really nice. It was fun to, you know, to check in with Pat. Like Pat Peard, I realized, I still consider her a good friend, but I, of course I never see her. Yeah. So I, reading the cookbook, I realized we need to get together. Yeah. Um, you know, and so now we can we, get together. Yeah, yes, that's exactly. right. Now we can get together. Yeah. We should, maybe, maybe we can get all the people who had recipes in the cookbook together for a potluck and we can all make oh, recipes yeah, and bring your recipe and we can all make recipes from the out in the kitchen cookbook. Wouldn't that be That's a great idea actually. One thing we noticed was that there were at least three or four who were from Massachusetts on this list. Mm. And when two of them because they were in our oh, bike group. Yeah. And then one of them was the conductor of our Women in Harmony choir. Mm-hmm. She's from Massachusetts. So I thought that was pretty impressive too that that they were getting involved. Well, it sounds like maybe it was even through you. Your, your, I, maybe it was. I wish yeah. we could remember more about how we did that. <laughs> and that reminds me that talking about fundraisers, our chorus, Women in Harmony, and the Gay Men's Chorus oh, yeah. in Portland had a joint concert that was a huge big fundraiser because mm. both groups were well attended whenever there was a concert. Yeah. And when you put them both together, that was a really big concert that, that raised yeah, a lot it, of money. And it was very moving to be singing I mean, it was the Maine Won't Discriminate concert. Mm. And, you know, to be singing with the gay men. And, I mean, it really was very emotional. Yeah, um, I imagine very powerful, too. Yeah, it was. Right. There were... 
all the voices, voices coming together. Yeah, and the joint music that we had were all very carefully chosen. We always ended our concerts with the song, We Are a Gentle, Angry People, and that that's always very moving. And you know, that reminds me of something else we wanted to say, and we talked about this with Pat when, we, when I called her. We were, the community aspect of all of this, the struggle, was so important and so affirming to all of us and so wonderful. And then we got our rights, including marriage equality, and everything just kind of dribbled out yeah. because, you know, there's something about, about fighting for something together that, that really bonds you together. Yeah. And, um, we were just saying it was, it's kind of, we kind of miss that. We are glad to have, a, have rights, yeah. but we do kind of miss the, the close, connection we had with the community but we're all still fighting right i mean there's always well, a yeah, new fight different yeah, yeah there's always right. a new fight yeah that's right that's right and we hope you know maybe that that's the answer everybody gets rights everybody's protected and yeah, we, don't... we gotta all keep working until everyone has yeah. i know because things rights. go backwards like now there's a lot of trans anti-trans oh, legislation yeah. around the country so this podcast is about community cookbooks, but it's really also about community. We've, we've touched on this already, I think, a little bit, but maybe you can kind of bring it together. Of what does community mean to you? I mean, I know having been through that period of not having a community, you know, changing our community because we were no longer married to the people we were married to and, and we didn't really have joint friends yet. And I know how important that was to us to, to both to affirm our relationship and to just make us feel like we weren't isolated. I mean, we've just been through a year of isolation, but to be isolated because of something that feels so fundamental or, or that involves who you love is a very horrible feeling. And community for me has always been huge. I mean, I, you know, uh, the schools that I've gone to, I'm always the one that remembers all the stories and and everybody knows me and I know everybody. And, you know, community has been huge in my life. And to suddenly kind of be without a community at the beginning of our relationship, I was very happy to be in the relationship with Susan, but we really needed that community to, to ground us. And that's why we were constantly, you know, starting things. The bike group, the bike club was the biggest. We did that for, what, 11 years, 12 years? Not quite. I think maybe yeah. nine, nine. But that was that really made a difference to us. It's it's a very important thing. Yeah. And um, and of course, if it means contributing, like sending your recipes to the cookbook, we'll do it. Yeah. Whatever it takes. Well, Nancy and Susan, it's just been really delightful talking with you today and hearing about how active you were and all the community that you built through the cookbook and through the bike club. And thank you for, for being here and talking with us. It's been really educational and, uh, and fun. Well, thank, thank you, you, Carl. Yeah, and we really enjoyed it. I mean, to, to see the cookbook again and see all those names, and we're going to try some of those recipes. You know, part of the podcast, we cook uh, a recipe or two from the book. So I, I'm thinking, I'm going to try your, and how did you pronounce it? It's not Spanakopita. Spinacopita. Yeah, Spinacopita. The girls will love it. Spinacopita. All right. I'm going to try, yeah. I, I think I'm going to try that. All right. Spinacopita. Yeah. And right. let us know how you like it. I will. I will. Thank you. Thank you. 
This episode is sponsored by Rabelais, fine books on food and drink, an antiquarian bookshop in Biddeford, Maine, with six centuries of cookbooks and other writing on all things culinary. Rabelais stocks a very large inventory of rare and hard-to-find books on cookery, historical farming and gardening, wild foods and foraging, the history of spirits, wine, and beer, and more. They purchase individual rare books and large collections in these fields. Rabelais is also the creator of the Unexcelled Project, a bibliographical and historical study of the American community cookbook and its place in our food culture. As part of the project, Rabelais actively collects early community cookbooks to research and catalog them. For more information about Rabelais and its books, or about the Unexcelled Project, visit rabelaisbooks.com. And now, back to our podcast. Welcome back. So I did make Nancy and Susan's recipe for, for and I, I keep wanting to say spanakopita, but it was not spanakopita. It is spanakopita. And I also want to say that all the recipes that we cooked for today's episode and for all of our other episodes have been posted on our website, communitycookbook.com. And you can go there and find the recipes and cook them yourselves and uh, if you cook something that you really like, send us a message. Let us know how it turned out. So I made Nancy and Susan's Spanakopita, and I asked them afterwards where the recipe came from. And, and they didn't really remember, but since it was the dish that they ate the first time they met, it felt appropriate that we should, we should make that for the episode. And uh, it was delicious. I mean, it's, it's basically sort of like Spanakopita filling just in a casserole. So it's spinach and cottage cheese and cheddar cheese and an egg and flour mixture, and you bake it all together in a casserole. And uh, we we ate it kind of as a dip because uh, it seemed like it was going to be a dip, although it does get pretty solid. It has some body. Yeah, it did have some body yeah. to it. And so I can see serving it as a side dish uh, to on a meal or or just eating it kind of as a dip. And so we got some pita chips and, and ate it as a dip. And it was uh, it was really well, nice. And Charlotte, our oldest, said, wouldn't it be great if we could just put this in like some puff pastry or something? Which, <laughs> right. you know. <laughs> yeah, we could. We could <laughs> yep. do that. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Don, what did you make? Well, speaking of dips, um, I, I made... Something from page one. I, I, I well, I made a couple things, but I made the oyster dip, which was exceedingly simple, which consisted just of a can of smoked oysters, a package of cream cheese, and some lemon juice, and it, it was very tasty. It was a pretty good package of smoked oysters, which probably had something to do with that. But it was it was good, and I'll make it again. It was just, but I I want to point out not including the spanakopita, which apparently can work as a dip. There are thirteen dips. When you, when you start this book out. Wow. And that doesn't include the three recipes for guacamole, which follow <laughs> the 13 dips. Wow. So there are 13 things that are called dips um, before you get to the guacamole. And then there's other, I'm sure there's a lot of other stuff in here that would serve the same purpose. But yeah, I saw the artichoke dip, I think also on that page that you cooked from. And I was in high school in the 90s that has some, you know, some nice nostalgia to it. I do anyway. have to say that there are three guacamole recipes, and one of these guacamole recipes has an ingredient in it, which I encountered once at uh, 
a, a Mexican restaurant here in Maine. And I've told people about this since then, and nobody's believed me. They thought I was exaggerating that I would find guacamole made with mayonnaise. And then here's a recipe <laughs> for guacamole with mayonnaise. So I, I'm, I'm vindicated. It, it exists in the world. I'm not happy it exists in the world, but it exists in the world. <laughs> the other thing I made, it's, it's a recipe, I, I, or, or it's, a, it's gougere, the little, those little puffed cheese balls from Burgundy. And it's something oh. that I got hooked on making. And it was one of the sort of like the only sort of baked things I made for several years early in my home cooking career. And it's a really, this is a really odd recipe. And this also gets to the heart of some of the other stuff that's in this book that really strikes me about the recipes. So before I get to the gougere, this book is filled with rather complicated recipes for, for global cuisines. You might turn the page and there's two pages facing each other and there's a dish from Turkey and there's a dish from China and there's a dish from Mexico and there's something from France. And some of them or many of the recipes are, are rather detailed. Some of them have little statements that say, you know, from the beautiful hills of the Burgundian wine country you know like they, they're there's a whole different type of language that's being employed in this book than we've seen in the others and there are two things one is i think that that comes from food media we're talking about the mid-1990s we're talking about a group of people who likely would have been aware of some of the food television that was that was going on we of course had julia child and, and the galloping gourmet and the frugal gourmet but we were also at the beginning of Food Network TV, and we had Gourmet Magazine, and Bon Appetit, and Savoir. And I think a lot of these recipes were drawn from those sources. Mm. And I also think that we've looked at these other books and sort of seen a quasi-coherent group of recipes that might represent what people are cooking on special occasions, mm. maybe, but also in home. Whereas this is like a look at the whole globe of food. When there's a, a recipe from Turkey or a recipe from Mexico, it's not because that's the person from Turkey or Mexico supplying the recipe. These are people who are getting these recipes from all of these different sources that are really looking at the whole world of cooking. You know, one other thing that I noticed is that there's a lot of vegetarian, there's a lot of things made with wholemeal grains, there's vegan, which I don't even remember being a term in the 90s, but there's a vegan cookie that requires soy, margarine, and energy egg replacer. There are a lot of things that seem both health conscious and, I don't know, the, the sorts of stuff that I remember from potlucks when I was a kid. Lots of brown rice and curries. And those fit right next to the Wicked Good Maine Lobster Chili. You know, they're all kind of, it's like a jumble in there, but it's like a potluck. Yeah, it is. And that whole idea of the, the sort of like vegetarian, vegan, nutritionally based or nutritionally focused mm -hmm. foods, that was another thing that was in the food media, maybe a slightly different mm -hmm. magazine or a slightly different set of cookbooks. But, you know, that it shows how these things were drawn from whatever was the moment. In terms of the Gougere, my first reaction was that this was a completely inauthentic recipe and that it was odd. And it is odd for one reason, but most of the recipe is actually pretty good. I went back and looked at the recipe I made a gazillion times back in the late 80s, which was from Patricia Wells' uh, Bistro Cooking Book, which was one of the first cookbooks I was ever given. It was a gift from a girlfriend who thought I needed to learn how to cook. And um, <laughs> Little did she know where you would so, go. <laughs> little did she know. And uh, well, she was right at the time, certainly. And <laughs> but the the recipe, it's certainly not word for word, but there's a lot of detail in this recipe in 
out in the kitchen that was supplied by uh, Monique Crochet. And it, that includes things like, this is, I mean, this is a very specific detail, but like, you know, when you're mixing butter, water, and salt in the pan, and then you're pour, adding the flour, and she says, until the paste comes clear off the side of the pan. That's like a really specific tip. Like, you know that dough is ready when it's peeling off the side of the pan cleanly. So this isn't a sloppy recipe in any way. The one thing that makes this recipe odd to me is that it basically says to make the gougere as a, as like baked in a pan, not as individual items. And to me, they're like a drop cookie, but they're, but they're not a cookie. But, you know, they're drops. You put them as little balls and you bake them that way. And then you have this little basket of these delicious little cheese balls on the table. This was like a sheet cake. Of, hmm. of this. And I've never seen that. <laughs> so um, is that how you I, made it? Did you make um, it as a sheet cake? There was enough there. I made it both ways. The, the sheet cake version wasn't, it was still tasty, but there was much less surface area that had been baked. Mm. You know, there was just the top and the bottom. Right. Whereas on the, the little balls, it's the entire surface. So the slightly crunchy outside, there was just less of that yeah. in the, in the cake version. So I, I still prefer the, the little balls, but I'm, it's just odd that they supply this and then they say, or you could do it as, as these drops on a pan. I don't know why the primary has now become a secondary suggestion. I, I have no clue. Did they taste good, though? They did They did taste good, although I, I would also want to go back and use the right cheese in the next one. Don, I just want to react to something you said earlier, which was that it felt like a lot of these recipes, some of the more international ones, were coming possibly from other sort of media sources like magazines and television and stuff like that. But there are a fair number of recipes in the book that are personalized and have some great titles. I can't necessarily vouch for them being great recipes, but the titles <laughs> were a lot of fun. We have Mashed Potatoes a la Betsy, which was not actually <laughs> contributed by someone named Betsy. And then right below that, we have a, a recipe titled Meredith's Envy, is this potato pizza. That's the title of the recipe. Meredith's Envy is this potato pizza. And it's a, it's a rather strange potato pizza recipe. The, the potatoes form the crust, I guess, of the pizza. And then it has soy mozzarella, but also Parmesan. And then at the very, at the very end of the recipe, there is a editorial comment which says, voila, Another cultural car wreck. So, um, <laughs> not, not sure what. To... S- strong endorsements. Yeah, yeah. But no one, no one made that. Uh, no, we didn't make that recipe, so we can't. Uh, Maybe it's wonderful. It might. Be. Maybe it's the soy mozzarella it that be. makes it. And then another great recipe title is, of course, what you made, Margaret, which was Tom Andrews' Wicked Good Maine Lobster Chili. Yeah. And uh, Tom Andrews, if it's the same Tom Andrews, was a representative to the House of Representatives. Yes. um, Maine uh, congressman. Maine congressman and has gone on to be the special envoy to Myanmar. Is that right? He is the United Nations envoy for human rights in Myanmar uh, now. And, and by all accounts, like a liberal lion in Maine state politics and nationally and internationally. Yes. Um, well, he was a state uh, representative and I believe senator and then was a congressman. And interestingly enough, you know, how connected uh, Maine politics is, he was a 
congressman alongside Olympia Snow, who was the congresswoman from the 2nd District. And they both ran for George Mitchell's Senate seat, and he lost that election. Olympia Snow became the senator from Maine, and it was Olympia Snow's husband, Jock McKernan, who was at that point governor. I don't know if they were married at the time, but eventually they married. And of course, it was Jock McKernan who vetoed the gay rights legislation in 1993. Yeah. Well, this was a wicked good recipe, too. It was a two flavors I did not expect to go well together, black bean chili and boiled and buttered lobster. But it was actually delicious. It was black beans and various peppers. And, you know, you make a fish stock. I, I made a lobster stock and cooked the beans with the chilies and the various spices in the fish stock. And then sauteed lobster. Yeah, which really, which gave the beans, I think, that sort of extra lobstery flavor. Yeah. It really imbued lobster into the beans. I really thought that that the bean and chili would be overpowering and you wouldn't really taste the lobster, but you really did. Yeah, there was a lot of skepticism around here, but um, everybody <laughs> liked it. <laughs> it was it was really good. Um, and then I also made a backyard rhubarb pie, which is a kind of a standard double crust rhubarb custard pie with the addition of a lot of nutmeg and some raisins. And uh, I think that the raisins were maybe, they're an unusual choice for rhubarb, but I thought it was really good. Um, it was definitely a recipe that had been written out by the person who contributed it because it was missing several of the ingredients in the instructions. But I just threw it all in and it was delicious. Yeah, I liked the raisins. I felt, I thought it was, it was a little too nutmeggy for me. I was a little overpowered yeah. by the by the nutmeg. But I liked the rhubarb and raisin, the texture. Yeah, I've been really into nutmeg lately. So I think you guys are kind of maybe sick of my oh, maybe that's why. nutmegging. Yeah. But it was good. Yeah, it was good. Recommend all the recipes we made. Yeah. We'll have to uh, reach out to former Congressman Tom Andrews and let him know that we liked his chili. Yeah. So, Margaret, do you think you'll uh, make any other recipes from this book or you'll cook these again? Yeah. It actually it was full of things. It was really hard to choose what to make, in part because a lot of the vegetarian ones, you know, remind me of my youth, but also... There were just like a lot of solidly interesting recipes in here. So I think we'll definitely cook from it again. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed looking at this book and, and thinking about community cookbooks and thinking about, you know, being used for social justice, right? We haven't had mm -hmm. a social justice cause yet. Uh, we've had cultural, the, the book we did last with the immigrant community was you know, sort of uh, social... It's cultural exchange. Cultural exchange, supporting communities that needed support, which was the immigrant and refugee community. But but this book is really about making change, you know, supporting something and trying to make the world politically and socially a, a better place. And it is Pride Month. So what better way to celebrate Pride Month than without in the kitchen and talking about this book and hearing from Nancy and, and Susan who have fought so hard for gay and lesbian and LGBTQ rights. And it's still relevant. We're still fighting, right? The fight for equality and for civil rights protection is more relevant than ever. So the work continues. Yeah. 
Well, I think that's a really nice note to end on. So we've reached the end of another episode of Cooking is Community, the Community Cookbook Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today, and special thanks to our guests, Nancy Wanderer and Susan Sanders. If you want to learn more about Susan and Nancy's story particularly, they are featured in a 1994 frontline documentary about Hillary Clinton's 1969 class at Wellesley College, which turned into Nancy's very public coming out on national TV. We'll put a link to the documentary on our website, which is communitycookbook.com. Thank you to Holly Near for permission to use her popular anthem, Singing for Our Lives, for our outro music today. And our intro music was a recording of Portland's Women in Harmony Chorus, which included our guests, Nancy Wanderer and Susan Sanders. Make sure to visit us and follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Community Cookbook Podcast. We've posted the recipes we cooked and photos of today's cookbook in those places. We're going to be taking a short break for a couple weeks over the July 4th holiday, and we'll be getting ready to talk about and cook from our next cookbook, Culinary Cullings, a community cookbook published in Presque Isle, Maine in 1891. If you have questions or comments about any of the cookbooks we're discussing or about community cookbooks in general, you can email them to us at podcast at communitycookbook.com. You can also leave us a voicemail. We'd love to hear from you. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe, rate, or leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you've published a community cookbook or are working on one now, send us an email or leave us a voicemail telling us your name, where you're from, the name of the cookbook, and the community and charitable cause it supports. We'd love to showcase your efforts. We'll be back in a couple weeks, and thank Thank you for for being part of our community. community.